You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, Book Talk Today family, and welcome back to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. My name is Orn, I am your host, and in today's podcast, we are joined by Farhan Samanani. Farhan is, completed his PhD in social, social anthropology, I always find it difficult to say that, uh, at the University of Cambridge, and he's done work on diversity, migration, and belonging for a number of organizations, including the World Bank, the Runningmead Trust, and Share Action. And today we'll be discussing elements from his book, How to Live with Each Other, an Anthropologist's Notes on Sharing a Divided World. You might think very topical subject and it is a very topical subject and it's an interesting subject for me i studied uh, politics at university but i did some courses in uh, anthropology uh, specifically cultural anthropology and it's a subject that i really enjoy studying at university just because i was able to read books uh, like farhan had written and as you know i absolutely love reading about many different topics but especially anthropology so when profile books came and sent me this book i thought it was only right for me to reach out to farhan and discuss elements from this book and it was a great conversation and it was a really interesting book actually about how we can go about some of the elements around how we can actually get along with each other there are many different divides that we like to separate each other from whether it be religious cultural or just location. I think location is one of those things that politicians are delving into more and trying to uh, seed uh, tensions between one another on the guides of national boundaries. And it's something that you might think is fabricated and it is to a degree because we share one planet and these national boundaries are sort of made up um, or not made up to a degree, but uh, are constructed. Uh, is probably the better word and so yeah we had a great conversation about what is anthropology and and how some of the ways that we can use anthropology to sort of share our divided world and try and find some common ground between one another if this is your first time here thank you so much for listening to the podcast and we have some amazing podcasts lined up in the next couple of weeks so i definitely recommend subscribing to the podcast Uh, whether you're listening to this on apple Spotify or watching this on YouTube, definitely recommend heading over to each one of those and subscribing there. Without further ado, here is the podcast with Farhan. Uh, the, the subject of anthropology is one that is of interest for me. I studied politics at university and being in the School of Social Sciences, I did a module on anthropology. And I think before anyone before I before I studied it, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> I think I saw it on my course module, I saw anthropology, I was like, what is that? <laughs> But after I studied it and after I learned a bit more about it, it was a very interesting subject. So it was interesting reading a book. So I thought it'd be uh, it's a very topical one in today's world as well. Um, And yeah, it was very interesting reading. So I think before we get into some of the elements of your book, I think it'd be great for you just to define what anthropology is for those. Yeah, um, anthropology is this wonderful subject, right? If you break down the roots of the word, it's anthropos, um, which is mankind, basically. And then polity, right? Ology, biology, sociology. It's just the study of mankind, humankind, um, which kind of means anything and everything, right? Um, but I think the best spirit of anthropology is really about learning from our differences, 
learning from the ways different people all over the world live, structure their lives, find ways of valuing different things, you know, what, what do they sort of pursue in the time that they have on earth? And then taking that seriously as equally meaningful expressions of humanity, you know? So about decentering our own perspective, our own values, the things that we tend to take for granted and really learning lessons from others. Um, and then historically, a lot of anthropology has been about going out and doing that from sort of exoticized cultures. So, you know, cultures that were sort of depicted as the other. And there's, there's some pretty um, strong colonial roots to that project because a lot of what sort of funded anthropology, you know, especially in Britain, was a sort of desire to understand the subjects of the empire, you know, the possibly unruly subjects of the empire, so as to better be able to govern them. Um, and what I do as an anthropologist is I take that way of looking that says we can learn from difference and we can learn from the sort of particularities and the richness of life in certain places. But I turn that lens sort of 180 degrees around and I use that to look at contemporary Britain. Um, and I say, you know, just the same way we can sort of receive a sort of sense of culture shock and really come to question some of our own assumptions by looking abroad um, and looking at sort of unfamiliar cultures. Actually, you know, even our own societies are filled with all these nooks and crannies of the unexpected and the rich and the brilliant, um, just sort of sitting there in everyday life. And so you can use those same anthropological tools in a sort of slightly less colonial, more democratic way to examine our own societies as well. And that's really what I like to do. So when, when you turned that mirror in your approach to studying anthropology, what were some of the main things that you found? Maybe some changes in your perspective towards Britain or <laughs> anthropology? Right. So, so it's funny, right? You can hear in my accent, I'm not British, um, but I'm, I'm from, I grew up in Canada. Um, and so, you know, and I, I came to the UK in 2008. In my first year in the UK, you know, you see it, you see it in Canadian media. There's a certain degree of Anglophilia, Anglophilia going on. You know, we have the queen on our money as well. Um, and so in 2008, I sort of thought, oh yeah, this is a very familiar culture. You know, um, I didn't have that sense of culture shock. And then like three years later, I'm like, oh no, this is very weird. Um, you know, and, and, and it was the slow realization that, for example, you know, when people say you're right, um, you know, little things like that, when people say you're right, they're just saying hi, they don't actually want to know, you know, um, if, if, if people say we should meet up sometime and, you know, don't, don't, don't follow up on that, what they meet, what they're trying to say very politely or indirectly is actually I'm not terribly interested in meeting, right? Um, but, but all of these things seem like they make sense when you're, you know, when you're, when you first arrive, especially you come from another Anglophone country and then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Um, you know, so, so there, there are those, um, kind of culture shocks that come, I think around that sort of quintessentially British culture, you know, indirectness, people always sort of, you know, there's a list of stereotypes, right? Moaning about the weather, queuing, all these sorts of things. But I think, you know, the bigger lesson for me was also that Britishness is much more than that. Right. Um, I think what, what's fascinating to me is that, um, Almost nobody can agree on what Britishness means. Uh, a lot of people are terribly embarrassed by the idea that we have to be sort of proud and chest thumping about Britishness at all. And yet everybody's sort of making different claims on it, right? And so, you know, all these different minority and immigrant cultures have their own take, not just on what it means to be sort of Indian or black or whatever, but to be black British or Asian British or whatever it is, right? Th those categories mean something for a lot of people, right? And so there's, there's this sort of diversity in Britishness that also lurks under the surface. Um, but at the same time, it's about people making claims on one another. You know, um, the, the, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase here because my memory is not perfect. 
But the anthropologist Virginia Dominguez um, wrote this book on a sort of contemporary Israel. Um, it's, it's now a little bit dated, but um, she had this wonderful line that I think applies to Britain very well as well. That's sort of, you know, um, I, I've, I've never seen a group of people so obsessed with the sort of questions, questions of who we are, who we ought to be in the sort of um, perpetually unbridgeable distance between these things, right? So, so there's somehow diversity and a preoccupation with some, the possibility of togetherness. And I think that's really fascinating. Uh, it's interesting because I think it's timely with the mm -hmm. Jubilee celebrations um, happening at the moment because there's this as aspect of like that centered aspect of what it means to be British with the Queen and the Jubilee celebrations. But at the same time, it's like an understanding of how diverse we are at the same time. So it's, it's battling those. Right, right. And, and, and I think this is exactly it. You know, you, you see among Britain's minority communities, on the one hand, lots of people who are really enthusiastic about those celebrations and it means something important to them and 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 that's one side of it and then you see a lot of you know criticism of the role of the british monarchy and its ties to the empire and you know the current queen's sort of accommodationist stance to some of this as well um but 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 that criticism is still somehow expressed in a sense of we you know we as the british people can be better than this right and and that that stands in contrast to you know some of what i'm used to um from north america where in some ways you know it's a more individualist culture and so if you get frustrated with sort of the way things are at the national scale or something, one way to sort of respond to that is just by opting out and, you know, turning inward to some extent and saying, well, things might not be great on a national level, but, you know, my community is stronger, my own sense of identity is strong. And so that's where I'm going to ground myself. Um, Do you not believe that to be the case then in Britain? Um, I, th I, think, I think it's definitely a lesser degree of that, but there's also this sort of dance back and forth, you know, um, a, a lot of minority communities who sort of face these multi-generational patterns of exclusion and struggle, of course, they do turn inward in certain ways. And this is one of the things I write about in the book as a sort of source of strength and solace mm -hmm. and, you know, camaraderie and rights even, right? People who will look after you in the state won't. Um, but at the same time, I think there's always a sort of outward um, kind of claim, you know, saying saying we as a nation need to be, do better. You know, we as, we as a nation can be... Um, more imaginative about who we are and more inclusive about that imagination. Do you not feel that when people use that we, they, they're trying to perhaps shift the blame though? Like when I hear politicians, when they make a mistake and they say <laughs> we, I don't want to say I. Right, so, so this, um, no, I, I think that we is very important, right? So when, let, let's talk about racism for a second, right? Um, yeah, let's yeah, go yeah, first, let's, let's right go for the jugular. Um, when we when we talk about racism, there's still this um, very stubborn perception in society, including in British society, that it's largely a matter of sort of individual bad attitudes. You know, you're a racist if you're like part of the KKK, right? You're a racist if you mean it. It has to come from the chest, so to speak, right? Um, and and you can see this because um, now, sort of, you know, um, la last year when you had the Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities sort of report that came out. Um, that basically said, you know, we don't think structural racism is a thing in Britain anymore, right? Um, oh, um, and, and, you know, they sort of blamed it on families and effectively family structures. And it's, it's another kind of way of blaming, blaming the poor and the excluded for their own problems. Um, but, but that sort of narrative only makes sense if you think of sort of structural racism in this very narrow way. Like, like you've got these rules that specifically say, you know, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish or something like that, right? And it's like explicitly coded in. But I think, you know, 
especially in Britain, but in a lot of societies that are struggling with racialized inequality, the way in which racism works um, on a sort of structural or cultural level is a lot more subtle. You know, um, I think again, if another poll that was done um, a few years ago um, about gollywogs, right? Which if you don't know what those are, they're these sorts of really kind of cringy blackface dolls, basically. And they look like a sort of depiction, not just of sort of, you know, somebody of African ancestry, but really specifically like somebody in blackface, like a minstrel show or something like that, right? Um, I think I think this was a 2014 poll. They don't quote, quote me exactly on this, but a quick Google will sort you out. Um, you know, um, a majority of the people who surveyed didn't think that was a racist depiction. They didn't think there was sort of a problem with gollywogs as a thing. Um, and so, you know, you can have your good intentions and, it, and you, can, you can mean to be um, sort of inclusive and tolerant or whatever it is. But, but it's, it's all these sorts of ideas that surround you, you know. The last time this place was really prosperous was when, you know, Britannia ruled the waves. And, oh, these are cute and not sort of harmful dolls. And all these little cultural influences, you know, the ways in which um, deprivation can often look like the fault of the people who are struggling with deprivation because... If you grow up in an area with, you know, bad schools, um, discriminatory policing, fewer opportunities, crap jobs, you know, at some point that 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 could that that can get flipped around and get sort of retold as, oh, these people just don't have ambition and they're not very intelligent. Mm. So people pick up these exactly, exactly. So people pick yeah. up these assumptions, and in some ways, those assumptions also tend to guide the way some of our institutions work, right? So there's a study I quote um, cite in the book about. Um, GCSEs in Britain and about black British kids um, getting streamed into the lower tier for GCSEs. So for those of you who are not familiar, basically you can take the sort of main paper where you can get any grade or you can take the sort of easier paper where your grade is capped, but the paper is easier. So, you know, um, it, it sort of, it sort of limits you to the sort of middle tier of achievement. Um, and the study looked at classroom grades to have a sort of baseline for performance and it found that black British students who were doing just as well as their sort of white British peers in terms of classroom assessments were disproportionately streamed into the lower achieving GCSE tier. So they had their potential being artificially capped at a higher rate. Um, you know, and, 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 and so you can see, you know, that, that's not because the, school, the schools that were in the study had a rule saying like, oh, if this kid's from, you know, an Afro-Caribbean background, like, hmm, <laughs> you know, um, it's because of those sorts of yeah, more yeah. subtle cultural assumptions that then find a structural expression in terms of shaping who gets to succeed in society. And those structural ones are interesting from an individual level, because I think you cited it in the book as well. You have individuals who might be, you know, they, they might not be racist in the sense that, you know, they're part of the KKK or BNP, whatever it might be. But then they might make a casual racist remark, but then claim, you know, I'm not a racist because <laughs> I've got like a black friend or I've got like a friend who's from an ethnic minority. So I think from an individualistic level, you kind of need to perhaps turn the mirror on yourself and wondering, am I perhaps casually racist or do I have some racist tendencies in the way that? I'm yeah, thinking? no, I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, this is a game where culture comes in, right? Culture is one of these words that's really a stock and trade for anthropology. Um, and it's just kind of the system of meanings and practices and beliefs and even feelings that, you know, a group of people share, however, sort of loosely or um, tightly. Um, and, and I, 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 you know, on the one hand, if anthropology is about learning from people's lives, something I try to do in that book is, you know, take those claims a little bit seriously. So often when I was finding that people were making those claims, you know, 
oh, I can't be racist. I've got friends from this or that background or whatever. You know, that was genuinely true. Um, they, they had built strong, meaningful, personal relationships with people from all over the world. And often they were still also reproducing narratives about migrants or minorities that sort of almost worked in contradiction to those friendships. Mm -hmm. And so part of the argument I make in the book is, look, the politics of sort of, you know, connecting across diversity and building a fairer society takes place on two levels. It takes place on the level of our communities and our personal relationships, where the bonds that we form between people become a powerful resource for providing support, for building understanding, for providing sort of a sense of solidarity. And you can see that play out in all these different ways in some of the stories that I tell at the local level. But there's also a politics to the stories that we tell. And actually, those personal relationships don't necessarily transform those bigger stories. So people who might have strong personal relationships and a strong sense of solidarity with certain individuals within their lives might also have just learned to tell a story that migration is a threat, you know, that racial difference is somehow eroding British culture, whatever that means, you know, um, because these are stories, right? Um, and they might not play out that concretely at an everyday level, but they might also still be taken up as useful tools for understanding some of the things that are going on as a society wide level. You gave a great example of that in the book and something that I've observed as well as a minority ethnic, third generation minority ethnic in Britain. This idea that, you know, it got played out throughout, you know, the 2016 um, Brexit, where you would have people from minority backgrounds whose grandparents had migrated to Britain saying that they should be a lot more strict on migration and they shouldn't let them in, even though they are the product of a migration, migrated grandparents or family. So like, where does that divide come from? And, and from your research, where, where does that right. originate? Um, so this, you know, this, 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 this is, this is the challenge when you take this sort of anthropological perspective, things make become a lot more complex, right? So if we have this simple kind of bad guy model of racism, um, you know, that, that's also sort of morally satisfying in a way, because you can point to the people who are the problem and then you can point to the people who are the good guys or something like that. Right. And then, and then, and you know, and then you go and actually yeah. talk to people and you have, yeah, you know, people's aunties and uncles and grandma and grandpa going like, Oh, these immigrants, you know, and it's like, aren't you an immigrant? <laughs> um, you know, like, aren't you a first generation immigrant? Right. Um, yeah. And so, and the story I tell, um, explicitly in the book is somebody who, um, whose parents came from Egypt. And then he's sort of making this claim about immigrants these days. They don't want anything to do with everybody else and so on. Um, you know, but, but, but I think that's again, because the stories that everybody's being given to sort of make sense of their world, make sense of the opportunities available to them, but also the struggles that they're facing are often these very kind of coded exclusive yeah. stories. Um, I think a lot about, you know, the, the moment where the empire Windrush arrived in like 1948, right? And, and there's sort of two, two kind of things that happen simultaneously that I feel like are, are sort of the story of this book um, in some ways where, you know, on the one hand, the London Evening Standard charters a plane, flies it out to meet the boat with a banner saying, welcome home. And the reason it says welcome home is basically because, you know, um, so the Empire Windrush is coming from Jamaica. It's actually basically a bottom-up initiative you know um in the subsequent years there'd be a lot of aggressive recruiting from the colonies to fill gaps in the workforce for you know public transportation for nursing and so on but that particular boat that's so famous within british history 
was actually just because there was a whole bunch of unsold spots. So some Jamaican entrepreneurs, um, you know, sold, sold off tickets to people saying, hey, you could start a new life in Britain. There might be some opportunity there after the war. And so it was really this sort of people's initiative to kind of move over. And a lot of those people had been raised in a sort of colonial school system where they were all British subject, subjects. And legally, they actually shared a basically identical legal status to British citizens who were born in the mainland UK. So legally, they were sort of, you know, saw themselves on a par with people. Morally, they saw themselves on a par with people in terms of citizenship and belonging, right? Um, and, and some Brits did as well, right? So the idea that Britain was the homeland was this sort of shared narrative that some people from the colonies held and that some people in the UK held. Um, and then at the same time, because it was this bottom-up initiative, even before the Windrush had reached port, um, you had government ministers describing it as an incursion, right? Um, as a sort of invading foreign force or something like that. And for the next sort of 14 years before Britain sort of passes its first restrictive immigration law that discriminates against people coming from the colonies of the Commonwealth, there's this series of su successive labor and conservative governments who are basically looking for a way to prove that migration is a problem, even before it ever, you know, manifests as one, right? They're convinced from the get-go, before the ship even reaches port, that, you know, these people represent a threat to our way of life. These people represent a threat to public order. It's a pre-given assumption that's baked in on a certain cultural level. And then they spend sort of 14 years looking for proof so that they can justify kind of keeping them out. Um, and it takes them 14 years to find a sort of satisfying narrative to do that, which, you know, um, shows you how much that's being cooked up, basically, right? And I, I think the book really is about the tension between those two stories. On the one hand, <clears throat> sorry, on the one hand, you know, how we've really insisted on migration as a sort of negative, corrosive force, how we've really learned to tell a story about differences, the sort of zero-sum game where the ways other people live sort of diminish our own lives in some ways, and how that sort of become a persuasive narrative, even though it's often not true. But then on the other hand, how from the get-go from sort of modern-day British immigration, from that post-war world moment, people have been telling a different story about the UK and about sort of difference more generally, where, you know, a home can be something that people from across the world build together. Home is something constantly in motion. Home is, you know, uh, something that existed even when people were living in the Caribbean or in India or Pakistan or wherever across the empire and commonwealth. Home already sort of pre-existed all of that, right? And, and, and so in some ways, what I'm trying to do is learn from that kind of counter history, that bottom-up story of people coming together and people finding ways of connecting, often at a local level, often at a community level, and use that to sort of pull away the foundations of that bigger, more dominant story about differences of threat. So on a more recent level, obviously, we've been having the, the, the war in Ukraine. And, you know, Britain's been very open to, to be for Ukrainian refugees to come and being housed by UK citizens. But at the same time, the British government announced that the refugees that are at Calais that are coming over on boats have to be shipped off to Africa and aren't allowed to come in. So like what would from your assessment of, you know, from an anthropological point of view and analyzing what you've just said, how, how do those two policies align with yeah um i mean migrate so 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 part of the argument i make in the book is that migration and to some extent race as well have become these sorts of powerful catch-all um topics you know if you look at 
polls of the British public over the sort of past 20 years, um, migration has been overall the single most important political priority for the public. They say, you know, th this is the c thing we're most concerned about. And that only really sort of changes in recent years after Brexit, where in some ways also, you know, Brexit is partly a cipher for controlling migration. So in some ways Brexit takes over, but that, that, that also becomes a useful substitute. Um, you know, and, and people use it when you hear the sorts of things people say about migration, you know, people use it to talk about diminishing economic prospects, you know, oh, these people are coming here and they're taking away our jobs. People use it to talk about the eroding fabric of community life, you know, oh, nobody wants to have anything to do with each other anymore. Back in my day, you could just let kids play in the street. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 <laughs> um, you know, par partly what, what I'm trying to insist on in the book is, first of all, at a local level, very few of those narratives are really true in a meaningful sense, you know, um, that actually people are really fantastically talented and creative at building all sorts of forms of community across lines of difference, for instance, you know, taking care of one another. Um, you know, I, I talk about I talk about sort of a community cafe where um, these mothers from across the world find ways of sort of sharing wisdom, but also actually the responsibilities and duties of parenting so that they can kind of take turns, take a break. Um, so, you know, th those forms of community not only exist and continue to exist, but are often enriched by difference rather than being diminished by it, right? Um, jo jobs is a little bit trickier because um, I think what's going on there is, you know, there are places in the UK where the sort of last moment of real prosperity was when they were integrated into the colonial, um, the colonial empire, right? So I, I do some of my work these days in Newham, um, in London, which is sort of East London, although the book is sort of all set in Northwest London, you know, and, and, and Newham's the Royal Docks, right? It was really prosperous at a time when goods were coming in from all over the world and that was sustaining the local economy. And then even sort of in the post-colonial moment, there was still some momentum from that sort of economic setup until it started to slowly fade away, right? And so, and so you look at the Royal Docks and some of the nostalgia that exists there is tied to genuine economic hardship. But then the idea that, you know, that's because migrants are coming in and taking the homes or taking away opportunities is often actually just used as a diversion to say, well, actually, we just haven't seriously invested in this place for the last 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. Right. So, you know, econ the economic hardship can be true. But then the story we tell about migration, about race or about diversity tends to be a sort of slightly diversionary tactic that speaks to real challenges, but gives people a much sim more simplified narrative that kind of, you know, um, all we need to do is make Britain great again in a way and find another, you know, um, kind of rebuild the empire through this way or that. <laughs> Trumpism. Trump, Trump yeah, well, you know, um, and I know you had um, Oliver Bullo with Butler to the World um, on the podcast a little while ago, you know, and, and, and that sort of economy, right, about selling British grandeur as a sort of cultural commodity, but also, um, you know, the banks and the sort of lawyers and everybody who sort of takes care of the elite, right? There's a lot of appeal in that vision not just for the people who really profit from it, but to some extent um, to some ordinary Brits as well, because it's a reaffirmation of the story that like Britain is this sort of important world leading nation with a, you know, sort of highly civilized culture or whatever. And th those stories are a diversion because they take the blame off the politics of the last sort of half century or 70 years that allowed that decline to happen without building up anything else. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the stories we tell about immigration, I think, have this sort of 
half reality to them, and that becomes their challenge, right? Um, but they but they also have this sort of diversionary aspect where they they keep us from building kind of more constructive politics around the sort of very issues that they try to name and address. Um, and sorry, yeah, that... no, no, I was oh, just sorry, gonna I was just gonna bring it back, right? Um, to when we're talking about why do people believe these stories and why do even people from migrant backgrounds believe these stories, it's because, you know, they're tapping into real challenges, right? Um, and at the same time, those challenges, well, so, sorry, I, I should say, they're, they're tapping into real challenges, but they're also expressing sort of genuine and not necessarily totally negative or exclusionary moral aspirations, right? So coming right back to that story, that you talked about, um, you know, about this young guy whose parents are from Egypt, and then he's sort of complaining about migration today. One of the reasons he's talking about that is he wants a sense of sort of stronger moral community. You know, he wants to know his neighbors. He runs a community center kind of for largely for young Muslims, but it's actually a very sort of open, inclusive place. And it's got this great reputation for doing loads of things, you know, movie nights, philosophy discussion groups, um, open mic nights that bring people in from all sorts of backgrounds and all over London. Um, and, but he also doesn't have a sense of sort of community and connectedness beyond that space, right? So he, he has this sort of one experience of openness and inclusiveness and connection, but then he doesn't know how to connect to, you know, the Polish community center down the road or the slightly less, um, involved mosque that's up the other way or whatever it is. So he has this sense of tension, right? Um, mm. and so, and, and the, so people turn to these narratives, not just as a way of expressing hardship, but also saying, you know, I do want to connect. I do want to know my neighbors. I do want to build things with them. And then again, it takes attention away from the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily the fact that there's immigrants here or people from different backgrounds or whatever that's impeding that. It's the fact that, you know, we've disinvested in community centers. We don't put a lot of emphasis on civil society in some ways in this country. Um, so the infrastructure for that connections um, in some ways never been there, you know, in some ways it's been impeded by these big narratives that we tell about race and difference. And then since austerity, it's been crumbling even further, right? So people often then also make that same moral complaint about I can't connect with my neighbors and they blame immigrants when really they're, they're lacking the resources to connect in the first place. It's interesting though, because on, on that front, in the book, you talk mm -hmm. about this idea of trust and in a cohesive society and i feel like at the moment there is very little trust in the political system to allow individuals to trust one another i don't know whether that's a narrative i don't know whether that's like part of the fabric of the society itself that doesn't allow trust to, to foster yeah to that's actually a really insightful way of putting it right so what i say about trust in the book is that effectively a lot of community building is an act of trust you know that if you're reaching out to people who are different and by different, I don't even necessarily mean from a different national background, different linguistic background, whatever. It could just be, you know, mm -hmm. people who live a different lifestyle to you, who come from a different class background, who come from a different part of the UK, right? Um, these differences can be meaningful, you know, um, in, 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 in really significant ways. You look at, for example, young parents, you know, if you're, if you're a mother with a baby, everybody's giving you all this unwanted advice and some of it feels can quite intrusive and, you know, so uh, even just different opinions can be a challenge, right? Um, and, and, yeah. and that causes, I think, a lot of people to turn away um, and turn inwards and say, you know, I'm going to build my own support network, um, but also I'm going to rely on, you know, the, the, the nuclear family and consumption and all these other sort of tools for sort of expressing my needs and finding a sense of meaning and um, kind of shaping who I am as a person.
And so, and we, we've, we've developed this slightly kind of anti-social way of, you know, um, of, of shaping our lives in some ways, right? Because we see connection as, if not a threat, then a risk, right? Um, and there's this wonderful study from mm. two psychologists that I quote in the book in Chicago, where they talk to commuters and they say, you know, they basically say, what would you prefer to do when you commute? Um, would you prefer to keep to yourself or do you prefer to talk to strangers? And the vast majority of people say like, no, 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 I want to keep to myself, you know, please, you know, you can imagine this being done in Britain. It would be even a more, an even more severe reaction. Right. I mean, imagine. Yeah. 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 You're on the tube. You're like, no. <laughs> right? it's, um, it's, it's, it's such a taboo. Right. Um, but then they basically make half of their sample do this, right. They make half of their sample talk to somebody every day on their commute, whether they want to or not, you know, you're doing it for science. Um, and these people, you know, report an uptick in happiness. They report a uptick in life satisfaction. So they don't want to connect, but then they're getting all these things out of it when they're sort of made to do so. Right. And so, um, that act when you're not being forced to do so by sort of university psychologists, then it requires a leap of faith. Right. Um, so it requires, it's an act of trust. It's an act saying that. You know, this person who's unknown to me, this person who's unfamiliar to me, this person who might even be a bit annoying to me has on some level something to offer. Um, and I need to, you know, I, I can, I can discover this only if and only if I actually commit to, you know, the sort of messy work of exploring and discovering that in the first place. Um, so, so the payoff is always in the second instance. So I I had a very interesting example of this. So like when I was at university, I delivered mm -hmm. pizza for Domino's in the evenings. And I would always come across customers that used to sort of complain about other customers saying, oh, you know, your other customers must be so rude and you must come across loads of rude people. And I'd never come across many rude people, but everyone thinks that everyone else is rude, even though everyone else is really nice. And this idea is this idea that, you know, my neighbor down the road is really, really rude or someone in another town is really rude. But actually, in fact, once you get onto a one to one conversation, with most people, they tend to be quite friendly. So I don't know whether this form of I think in the book, you, you term it as like um, the unfamiliar other. So even the person that is of the same, you know, race or social standing can be considered an unfamiliar other. That's right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's this great story that comes from the field workers doing in Kilburn um, that that sort of, you know, I tell stories from there throughout the book, but this one isn't in there. So, you know, you can consider it some bonus content for your podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Special yes. features. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I lived on this estate in Kilburn that had this elevated podium right outside my tower block. So basically like a big courtyard, but it was one story off the ground. Um, and then there was these young, young kind of guys, you know, in their sort of late teens, early twenties who'd gather there and who'd play football together quite often. Um, and, you know, just pick up football. Anybody can kind of come in, you know, I'd play with them sometimes. Um, but if you've, if you've kind of been in one of these matches, it was very rowdy and a little bit rough, you know, um, if you can kind of bump somebody over without <laughs> anybody, um, catching it and there's no referee anyway, you know, and people are cursing at each other. Um, and then this estate did have a little bit of a challenge with sort of crime and violence more generally. And I think these young guys were playing with that a little bit, you know, so by like screaming at each other and, you know, this sort of kind of rough, rough housing atmosphere, 
if you weren't in view of the game, especially, but even sometimes if you were watching it, it sounded quite intimidating, right? And so a lot of people would talk about that courtyard as a space where you see like these young hooligans, whatever, right? Um, in that sort of way. And so, and so people avoided it, right? Because they, they associated it with sort of danger and risk, even if it was just kids playing football, you know, um, it might be that they were blaring hip hop or whatever it was, but the sort of aesthetics of that kind of kept people away, right? Um, and then one afternoon I was playing with them um, and I saw this really remarkable thing happen where there's this old guy, old Caribbean guy who was sort of in his seventies, um, a neighbor of mine who I knew quite well, um, who's sort of, you know, slowing down with age. And he, he basically, we were using the two points where you can enter and exit this courtyard. The rest is sort of fenced off. We were using the two points where you can enter and exit as goals. So basically it did sort of colonize the space a little bit. But, you know, people see him coming and nobody really communicates this to each other explicitly, but the play slows down. And instead of anybody trying to score any goals, they sort of, you know, start showing off their footwork and do these short passes and like try to get the ball away from each other. But in a way where we're, it's clear that right now we're not competing. Uh, we're just sort of, you know, having a bit of fun while this guy crosses the courtyard. And it's sort of like Moses parting the sea, you know, they make space for him and they let him through. And then once he kind of leaves out the, you know, the other exit, the other goal, then the aggressive play really resumes, right? So it's like, if you were intimidated by the sort of sounds of that match and the sort of look of it and, you know, the roughhousing or whatever, you'd never do what he would do, right? You never actually just step into it. Um, but once you step into it, you know, there, there's this sort of mutual recognition. People accommodate one another. Um, I think that's such a striking illustration of how that sort of trust works you know it's, it's it's exactly like your story right um people people make these negative assumptions and then once you actually sort of commit to the experiment of in some way sharing space or connecting with others you can be really surprised by the results it's a difficult though when that level of trust is communicated in a way that is then becomes a fabric of society and i think that's perhaps the underlying one of the underlying messages in your book is you have this narrative that's at the individual individualistic level um and the community wide level and then you've got like the one that's at the political level or even within the fabric of the democracy that is you know the country and and how you you, you navigate those divides and and that story is perhaps yeah difficult. well and i think you said something really smart earlier right you said that when people <laughs> no no really um when people are you know the disillusionment people have with formal politics right with the ways in which national politicians are acting with the way in, you know, which they feel maybe over multiple governments or even multiple generations, their needs are not really being seriously listened to. That disillusionment, I think you're absolutely right, can be projected onto that everyday level, right? Um, and I think that's that the sort of paradox and the difficulty between these two levels of politics that I was talking about earlier is when you look at people's community level involvement, their personal connections, their friendships, the people they fall in love with, you know, so much of that is circumstantial. It's hard to predict. It's incredibly hard to engineer. Um, and at some point, you know, um, I, I talk about this in the book, it, it, it would even go against the principles of, you know, democracy to, to engineer these sorts of things in some ways, right? Because we can talk about all the ways in which love, familial relations, friendships, um, even just sort of workplace acquaintances or whatever, play a meaningful role in conditioning, you know, the security net that people have, the opportunities that they have access to, the perspectives that they have access to, right? They can be really important 
um, forces in sort of shaping a just or unjust society. But at the same time, for, you know, for the government to tell you like, oh, you got to go be mates with your neighbor now, you know, that, that is borderline totalitarian, right? Um, and so... So how, how do you navigate the space for equality? Right, right. So, so, so this is... This is because exactly. This is really tricky, right? And I, um, so I think what happens is it's circumstantial, but what you can do is you can hold open spaces. Right? You can provide resources like community centers, like festivals, like FETs. Um, you know, you can um, basically provide the resources for people to shape things for themselves, right? And let it happen more organically. But, and this, this, this is what I really liked about your comment, the other thing is that, you know, that sort of circumstantial, those circumstantial encounters do get colored by the bigger stories that people tell, right? So if people have a bigger sense of disillusionment, distrust, frustration, you know, if they're telling these negative stories about migration as well, that's going to keep them, or at least, you know, some of them, to some extent, from wanting to take those risks, make those leaps of faith or leaps of trust, enter into some of these spaces, you know, try your luck with a stranger as it is, right? Um, and so mm. it's, you know, again, there's sort of just as there's sort of a double problem, which is about, do we have the capacity to form connections on an everyday level? And do we have the capacity to um, tell, uh, you know, what sorts of stories are we telling and how exclusive or inclusive are those, then you need a double solution, right? You need to sort of find a way of telling people, actually, there is a lot of potential and there is something to be gained in, you know, connecting with your neighbors, um, connecting with people from different backgrounds, taking risks, making these sorts of leaps of trust. And you need to provide the resources for that to actually happen, right? Um, and, and each of those sort of suffers without the sort of complementary um, for politics, one or the other is not good enough. That's why I think, you know, you said that, you know, the US or Canada falls into this individualistic way of thinking about the individual that is up to them to perhaps form these ties and, and have be the one that is enforcing this type of, you know, community trust. And perhaps this is the UK, so we're talking specifically about Britain, maybe this is their move away from that community aspect into the individualistic way of seeing it um, that the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? So it's, it's, it would be totally unfair to paint the U.S. and Canada with a totally broad brush, you know. And some of the richest forms of community you see of are, for example, in um, marginalized, excluded communities who found ways of coming together. But you can also look at those countries and see that a lot of the infrastructure there has been really stripped away in a way that sort of the U.K. hasn't even reached yet, right? So I grew up in Calgary in Canada, which is a city that occupies a similar amount of land to New York, but has a 10th of the population. And that basically means it's all suburbs and you couldn't walk anywhere. It was impossible to walk anywhere. You could walk to the playground in my neighborhood. You could walk to the gas station, um, the petrol station, I should say. Um, and, and, you know, beyond that, you'd have to drive. Um, and that meant that those, those opportunities for sort of spontaneous encounters you know, even, even the possibility of having something like a community center was just totally unthinkable, right? Um, people went to shopping malls um, to sort of, you know, for, for leisure and this and that. And that's also a very individualized experience, right? Mm. Um, and so, so you can see how the physical infrastructure for cities really has a knock-on effect for those sorts of possibilities of connection. And then in contrast, you know, the thing that was, one of the things that was really remarkable about the UK is that even, you know, even in London, even in the most sort of, hyper gentrified oligarchic whatever bits of london you know in mayfair or wherever there's still pockets of council housing right now 
are we providing anything for you know the the residents of those council council estates to connect with their sort of near neighbors no you know so 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 we're not you're right there there is sort of a deterioration going on there but there's also you know a, a potential that exists there that doesn't exist when you have to sort of rebuild the whole city or you know roll out this massive non-existent network of public transport in order to even allow the a glimmer of possibility for connection in the first place right um so so there's there's potential that we're still holding on to in the UK that I think, you know, we would be really foolish to continue to squander. It's amazing. That's just a matter of space as well. Actually, that's a consistent thing throughout the whole of the UK, actually, you know, in different cities, you find that you find that, you know, that you have these massive uh, pockets of, 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 um, let's say, uh, more affluent areas, but then they're always closely connected to something that is a bit more council house run. It seems to be a common thread, actually. Throughout yeah, I mean, Kilburn, where, you know, again, a lot of the book is set and where I was doing my research, um, is really a microcosm of that, right? So there were, there were streets that were like 10 million pound plus mansions um, across the street from the council estate on which I was living, right? Um, and, and on that smaller scale, you do actually see people come together over different things. So, um, you know, something that I thought was really cool as a totally informal civic initiative, right? So there's, there's community groups and these more formal stuff that draw people together based on what your interests are, but they also take time and commitment. But then something that happened was there's a, it's now the Kiln Theater. It used to be the Tricycle Theater, um, which was a sort of, it's a kind of very, it's, it's, it's a sort of independent theater. It's not that big, but it's got a lot of sort of awards and recognition across London. And then it also has a cinema. And so on a couple of days a week, the tricycle, as it was back then, you know, would do sort of two pound tickets or five pound tickets or something for, for the cinema for, for locals. And that would attract, you know, people who, for whom normally going to the cinema was a little bit unaffordable or something like that. But it was also this really like lovely, well-engineered space, it was buzzy, it was comfortable. Um, and, you know, it was a theater, so it drew in a lot of the kind of middle-class artsy type as well, types as well. And, and it was sort of set up to create a lot of these mingling. So people would meet friends or run into sort of community groups who were hosting informal meetings in the cafe or whatever. And there were these chance encounters that you could actually witness happening there, um, in part because they found ways of offering something to different groups in an overlapping space. And that, I think, is a really sort of useful and powerful template, you know? How can you sort of make multiple offers, but then have a sort of common core to them as well? Yeah, that common core is, is perhaps at the community level the most the most important thing, you know? Just to divert onto something, something I really wanted to ask you, because you're an academic, so you obviously love knowledge and you love reading. In this book, In the book, I got this idea that you know, I love to read and I love to speak to authors and, and speak to people about, you know, big ideas and, and that type of stuff. But one of the things that I've been thinking about myself is can knowledge be unmediated? Because I think the more that you read about history, the more that you read about individuals who have written these very prominent books, you come to think that they have their own personal perspectives on things. And, you know, thinking about knowledge and the filters that knowledge must go through, it's, it's difficult to, to see whether knowledge can be unmediated and whether you're getting to the core objectivity of what knowledge is. So I just wanted to get your take on, on, on that <laughs> and, and perhaps how we can, you know, <laughs> uh, navigate that. Okay. As, we're as we're going happens. in for the big philosophical questions, 45 minutes in. Yeah. We're, we're, we're yeah, going, no, we're going. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, it's are. a great question, right? Um, 
And actually, this is, you know, so I talked to you a little bit at the start of this podcast about what anthropology is and does. But in the book, I spend a lot more time explaining that. And I think, you know, the reason is it, it relates exactly to this question. You know, can knowledge be unmediated? So um, a, a, a sort of really powerful fact that I um, use in the book is that when we're born, our brains are sort of only a quarter of their eventual adult weight. Um, you know, and this, this is all the other, all our primate relatives have much bigger brains relative to the sort of final adult weight when they're born um, than we do. We do a lot of our neurological development outside of the womb, which also means that we do a lot of our neurological development in specific cultural environments, right? And what you can actually see when you look at that process of sort of early childhood development and reaching these sorts of, you know, certain uh, milestones of sort of children becoming self-aware and learning to interact with each other and so on, is that we do this in this very culturally conditioned way. Um, that we actually, you know, our, our, our whole apparatus for knowing the world, exactly as you say, is profoundly and sort of inextricably shaped by culture, right? People always talk about nature versus nurture. And I think that's sort of a false opposition because nurture is our nature. Our nature is to learn and grow and adapt in response to specific environments. And then we pick up on regularities in those environments. We make them part of how we think and how we feel and how we see ourselves, right? Um, there's, a, there's an experiment um, that, again, I talk about in there called the mirror mark test, which um, is where, you know, it's, it was this classic experiment for measuring, like, at what point do children gain self-awareness? And the, the Western version of this, that was at one point thought of as the universal version was you put a sort of mark on the kid's forehead, you know, a bit of rouge or a sticker or something. Um, and then you show them the reflection. If they, they recognize, you know, the, if they like sort of react to that mark on their forehead, then they know, you know that they know that the reflection is them, right? Um, and then they were doing this test with children from other parts of the world and they were seeing that they were only managing to do this at a much later age, right? So um, Western children were doing it sort of towards the end of their first year or into their second. And, um, you know, other, other children, it could take them up to age six to get this, you know, to react in the way that was expected. And then people started coming up with sort of culturally sensitive versions of this test, right? So for example, rather than having to be self-aware about your image, what about self-aware about your body, right? So there was a second version of this test that involved basically putting, let me see if I can illustrate this, putting the baby um, there's a shopping trolley, a little like baby sized shopping trolley. And then there's a mat um, attached oh. to the sort of back axle of the shopping trolley. You put the baby on the mat and you ask them to push the shopping trolley that way. And they can't because they're standing on the mat that is impeding the trolley from moving. So they have to actually go around and move it from the side or from the front. And then Western children do really badly. And this experiment was with um, Turkish and Zambian children who were doing much better than the, their Scottish counterparts. Um, you know, and, 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 and when you look at the different parenting styles that exist in those cultures, there's a lot more physical interaction. There's a lot more physical guidance. And so these children are learning to think of themselves as physical entities. They're becoming self-aware in a physical relational way where sort of, you know, the, um, the Scottish children are becoming self-aware in a sort of abstract image-based way. Um, and those are both forms of self-awareness. One is not sort of more or less intelligent than the other, but they're very culturally conditioned, right? Um, and then to kind of take it one level further, um, this question that, you know, can knowledge ever be unmediated? So I think the claim that anthropology, or at least a lot of anthropologists would make, you know, this is something we sort of debate among ourselves, 
Um, but I think a claim a lot of us would make yeah. is it's sort of that mediation happens all the way down, you know, so we share a common physical world. Of course we do, but everything that we use to access that world, whether that's, you know, the scientific equation that describes the workings of gravity or electricity or quantum physics, or, um, you know, our bodies, our eyes, our brains, our cultural concepts, those are always particular and they can always, they always come with certain possibilities and certain limits, right? So er you know, even an equation is a form of mediation, right? Gravity itself isn't math, it's gravity, mm. right? Um, and, the and, and to reduce it down to sort of the workings of math tells you certain things about gravity and doesn't tell you other things about gravity, right? Um, and you can see this, you know, certain, a lot of scientists don't have a problem with this, right? So um, right now, you know, in, in, in physics, you know, we've got kind of, you know, classical physics, Newtonian mechanics, the stuff that describes how gravity works. And then we've got quantum physics where like gravity gets really weird on a small scale. We also don't know what actually makes gravity sort of happen, right? There, there might be a particle. And, you know, science is okay. It's searching for a way to sort of stitch those frameworks together, but it's also sort of in some ways, okay, proceeding without everything having to add up and sort of be the same sort of truth, right? So in some ways there is a recognition that those are mediated forms of knowledge, right? They're, they're sort of ways of getting at our underlying reality that we're always going to sort of condition our perspective in certain ways, right? Um, no, no. It's interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but I think in that case as well, it's like the knowledge isn't the thing that people are searching for. It's the perspective on how to search for that knowledge. Exactly. That yeah. Um, and, 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 and you've just hit on what I think makes this sort of, you know, realization so powerful is, you know, it's not one of the, if, if you say, okay, all knowledge is mediated, it's not this sort of nihilistic, so, you know, whatever you believe, um, anything goes, you know, every perspective is equivalent to everything else, but it's actually about the project of building common ways of knowing and about building useful ways of knowing together, right? Um, so a, a theme that kind of comes up in chapter seven of the book is, are some of these debates around, you know, post-truth, um, and I use the example, not even of the COVID pandemic, though that's in there a little bit, but of the sort of, you know, um, the hoof and mouth disease pandemic in the sort of early 2000s in the UK as well, where, you know, on the advice of um, scientists um, and sort of epidemiological modelers, including some people who've now been very influential in directing the UK response to COVID, um, you know, the UK slaughters all these livestock and then later finds out that they probably didn't need to do that, right? Um, because, because, you know, there's the difference between treating your scientific model as reality and treating your scientific model as a model and therefore as a way of mediating reality, right? Um, and when, when we fail to acknowledge that, mm. then we can t end up with a sort of almost slightly totalitarian politics of expertise where, you know, the model is the only way what it says goes, it, you know, it's, it's the sort of only truth out there. And it's not just, it's not just sort of imposing in a way that can lead to these major mishaps, like in the previous epidemic, but it's also very disillusioning, right? It pushes citizens away from having any sort of active stake in the sorts of knowledge that nonetheless sort of shapes and governs their world, right? Whereas if you just find these spaces to open, open it back up and say, you know, we're not just about trying to find the single correct thing, but we're about trying to find the sort of forms of knowledge that are useful for bringing us together, for allowing us to do things that we value, then that makes knowledge into something political and it also makes it into something democratic, right? It brings citizens back into that process, even if they're not the scientific experts. 
It's because I think that at the moment, knowledge is being used as a political tool instead of something to educate the public. Because like, I think like in, in respect to experts, I wrote, I, I read this book a couple of years ago called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. And he talks about how in a lot of cases you have experts who get so entwined into the field that they become blurred by anything that's outside of it. And I think you gave a great example in the book about how, you know, even the most academic scientists can be, you know, the, the harshest deniers of climate change. So it's like an expert doesn't necessarily mean you're perhaps educated to speak on the subject, but it's, a, it's something that I think as a citizen, you need to be very conscious of is where that information is coming from. And, and you can't be solely reliant on and a quote-unquote expert to, to yeah well let me let me just backtrack and get that climate change thing right um so so that study that i was quoting was not about experts but it was about sort of you know levels of scientific knowledge in the general public and basically the finding was that among the general public you know the pe high levels of scientific literacy you know being able to answer the right questions on sort of a science test basically um did not correlate with belief mm -hmm. in climate change actually it was sort of a u-shaped thing where People with high scientific literacy were both the strongest believers and the strongest disbelievers. But it wasn't, it, just, just, just to clarify, it wasn't experts. Oh, I see what you The mean. general public. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks for clarifying. But, but, but I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Right. You know, um, coming back to the sort of hoof and mouth disease example that I use in there, you know, there, there, there's examples of these modelers going, this is exactly like reality. Right. Um, and if you're making that claim on the one hand, but then the other thing I point out is there's like three or four different epidemiological models, all of which disagree and which point to different policy prescriptions. And then everybody's insisting on the sort of singular reality of their own way of approaching things. That, that becomes an impasse, right? It becomes disillusioning for the public. It actually stifles debate scientifically. It stifles policy debate um, because, because it black boxes knowledge, exactly as you say, right? Um, and so doubling back and kind of getting at the, you know, the bigger message of the book, um, a lot of it is, you know, if, if we're talking about systems of trust, right, if we're talking about connecting with other people and understanding people who come from different backgrounds or hold different values as a sort of act, par partly as an act of trust, where we sort of have to engage in order to be able to figure that out, um, you know, we're closing off all these avenues of trust in all sorts of both sort of subtle and very overt ways, you know, not just in terms of sort of exactly, you know, the, the, the direct politics of community and diversity, which might be the stories that we tell about migration or race or so on, but actually the way in which we talk about knowledge in general, where it's, you know, leave it to the experts, you don't really have a stake in this. Um, and, and, so, and so we're not really venturesome, we're not really experimental in our own thinking, and that can filter into our civic politics. See, I think it's, I, I, uh, my, my thinking is kind of like the other way around. It's like there's a disillusionment with politics, which then feeds into the... Oh, I think, I think it's a vicious cycle. Uh, uh, you know, it, can, like... it, it doesn't have to be one way to the other. Um, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think you know, we can, we can lose these civic habits of taking a stake in our communities, taking a stake in our neighborhoods, but also taking a stake in how things like expertise are used to govern us. Um, because we lack the infrastructure to get involved, because we lack the time, because, you know, there's, you know, cost of living crisis right now, there's more and more pressure on our time and on our resources. And so all these things are disabling, but also because when we do get involved or when we do sort of try, you know, the political process is incredibly frustrating. And in some ways, you know, our political institutions um, are, are, are sort of proving themselves not fit for purpose. And so that can, that can reinforce 
the motivation to not even bother trying, even if you have the opportunity, right? So it can become a really vicious cycle. Exactly. That is a very vicious cycle. I, I feel like a lot of young people, that's why I think of a lot of young people are turning to more, um, probably grassroots levels of act of activism rather than political the political process and that's why i think there's a lot of activism in the form of protests instead of actually civic engagement because people don't actually believe that the civic engagement mm -hmm. can actually amount to much which is a bit which is a bit that's why it's there you know it sort of brings up the question of why is the political process there if it doesn't allow people to actually yeah no I, I find that really interesting so i don't really talk about protest um the turn towards protest in the book but i think it's it's tied to something that i do talk about which is sort of the turn towards identity politics, which I don't really like that term. So I sort of use it with this big asterisk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Define for sure. that for people, because I don't think a lot of people can def know. Yeah, what so identity is. politics is the prioritization of issues of identity within the sort of political frame. So that might be, for example, you know, um, rather than your movement being about um, lowering tuition fees for everybody or about, you know, reforming the court system or whatever, it might be about focusing on having, you know, specific um, benefits for kind of groups who can define themselves as more marginalized for, you know, black women or for migrant women or whatever it might be. Um, and, and a priority on those categories of identity oh, as the sort of focus of politics ab above and beyond sort of more broader cross-cutting kind of agendas, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of criticism of that sort of politics these days, but I, I, I actually, I, I think I take a very sympathetic reading, right? I think there's some very definitive limits to it because exactly as I'm sort of suggesting, it, it can impede, you know, um, action that is sort of more inclusive and more transformative, but actually a lot of minority communities have turned towards that sort of framing of their issues because they feel that historically and sort of decade after decade, generation after generation, involvement in these sorts of broader coalitional politics has let them down, has often used them as fodder for sort of pushing through bigger changes that benefit other people more than they benefit them. And so they've always sort of been within these sorts of civic movements, second-class citizens, right? Um, and I think the tie to the kind of the politics of activism is a little bit similar, right? So that, um, you know, when you look at identity politics, some of it is about material gains, but it's also about sort of valorizing identity, right? About sort of having ways in which you can feel good about who you are. You know, it's about representation. It's about, um, you know, more LGBT characters in the media, more black, black women in the media, whatever, um, without necessarily confronting some of the structural inequalities that might exist around, you know, um, that. Yep. And so... It's like a quote. Yeah, yeah. Well, like it, it can be, right? Anything. And that's some of the things... It, at, least, at least in some yeah. versions, it can be. Um, and I think the challenge with that sort yeah. of thing is... People turn to these, you know, well, I want to feel represented. I want to hear my story told. I want a place in the public narrative and not necessarily the sort of, you know, material politics of inequality or sort of exclusion because of that same sort of historical frustration, right? Um, because it's not that these communities or these people haven't been interested in confronting these thornier issues, but they've sort of kind of constantly been rebuffed or let down by allies or so on. Um, and, and I think the turn towards activism sort of expresses a similar logic, you know, people want to find a sense of their own agency, a sense of hope to tell a different story about the world they live in. Um, and, and in some ways confront big, big, really big, you know, challenging big picture issues, like for example, climate change, like racism, 
at a sort of encompassing scale because they feel really big and encompassing, right? Um, but but that can sometimes miss the ways in which you know these issues are constructed off all these kind of more local, you know, who's using energy and how, and what is your neighborhood doing, and who are you buying from? Are you supporting, you know, Shell or BP or Chevron or these these companies that have sort of spent decades denying climate change, you know, that, that the sort of major politics of climate change, which you can sort of confront through a protest, are sort of made up of sort of all these micro and macro politics of, you know, how we're structuring our economy, how we're building our lives. And people have become disillusioned with action at that level because it is hard and is frustrating and is precarious. But, you know, that protest can be a double-edged sword. It can change some things, but it, and, and it's absolutely needed. Um, you know, for example, bringing in better government regulation of if we're continuing to talk about climate change, fossil fuel companies. Um, but, but it can miss the sort of more civic level that is also sometimes needed to build power to make those protests effective in the first place, right? The sort of politics of bringing people together and so on. Yeah. That, that's something I see with activism a lot of the time is you have those neutrals, you know, you have people who are like blocking the motorways and you have people like, look, I'm just trying to get to work. Like, can you get out of my way? Right. <laughs> kind of thing is like, yeah, activism is good, but not when it's at the detriment of individuals who are perhaps even on your side, but even from doing what you're doing, you're sort of taking them off your, your, your form of activism or right. what you actually find. Um, and so coming back to sort of another lesson from the book, you know, Part, part of what I, I argue is that, you know, understanding of these sorts of issues, you know, whether that's climate change or whether that's social inequality or whatever, often actually get built through the sort of more civic level, right? These chance encounters, these sorts of um, gradual processes of involvement and investment. And so if you want to build a big coalition, you know, if, if Extinction Rebellion are looking to, you know, bring on board the people who got pissed off at the Canning Town protests where they stopped the trains, for example, which, you know, in, in the work I've been, I do with sort of London communities for months afterwards, that was sort of a, you know, people kept bringing it up as an example. Oh, this is, you know, this movement doesn't care about working class Londoners, doesn't care about sort of minority groups because, you know, to XR, this was about blocking access to the city of London, right? It was a protest against the elite, but people took it as a action against themselves, right? And if, if, you, if you want to build a broader coalition, you actually have to do the messy, slow work of just giving people a route in, right? Sitting together. And it can even be like relatively non-political stuff like, you know, social events, dinners, gatherings um, that allow people to find their own angles of attachment and investment because these will always vary with that common core again, right? Um, and, so, and so again, yes. protest is powerful. It's necessary. But it's also a question of how do those movements build power? How do those movements um, find ways of becoming inclusive um, in order to sort of genuinely represent a range of things and, and to have a sort of critical mass of people to push with, right? And that happens more at that civic level. It's gradual. It's messy. We need to invest in that if we're going to build effective movements. Yeah, like how, how long does it last? Because I'm always interested in those movements because how long does it last bar that? front page headline and then there's they're on to the next one after that it's like what you actually achieve <laughs> yeah that's right um and I, and I think this is this is the you know the risk and the reward with civic politics right um i i coming back to this theme of trust you know it take it takes trust to get yeah. involved you have to sort of take a certain risk but it's also it sort of takes trust to rely on these movements on a sort of a more general level you know they're messy people fall in people drop out um you know people get involved for all these sorts of personal reasons. So I talk about a sort of very local environmentalist group where, you know, um, 
everybody has their own sort of interpretation of what the environment is, what climate change is. And, you know, somebody just wants to save the bees and somebody's more care, you know, cares more about species diversity. And somebody's sort of a sort of, you know, wishy-washy homeopath and somebody's an old school socialist, right? And, yeah. and, and holding those coalitions together can be messy, but in some ways it's sort of necessary if, if, if those movements are going to reach critical mass, right? And so it's also trust in that sort of messy process, you know, that these things will maintain themselves over time. Um, and it is demanding. It's definitely demanding. I just, you know, the, the argument of the book is sort of that it's not only worth it, it's actually absolutely necessary. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, I think it's a wonderful place to leave it, that, uh, that idea of trust and the necessary aspects of, of civic duties. Anyway, Farhan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it to discuss your book, How to Live with Each Other, an anthropologist notes on sharing a divided world right here um where's the best place that individuals can find you farhan whether it be a website or um you know i'm miserable at social media but i do have my own website which is farhan.somnani.net um or you can um find my work webpage. So i work at the max planck institute for the study of religious and ethnic diversity and um you can find my contact details there if you're interested in getting in touch um you can follow me on Twitter, but you'll probably be so sorely disappointed um, because I mostly just use my Twitter to follow other people. So, <laughs> Hey, you know, you, you search your media the way that you want to. Um, and if you're interested in buying the book, um, my publisher is Profile Books, and then they've got a great list of sort of both main, major mainstream and then in, more independent bookstores you can um, buy from. So, you know, if you want to give Jeff, Bezo Jeff Bezos your money, you can do that. And if you want to not give just Bezos your money, they've got a bunch of other options like Hive or um, for you there as well. So the profile books site has a nice list of places to buy from. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely put the links to, to that yeah. in the description below. Anyway, thank Farhan, you for having thank you so me. Much for it's been a pleasure. On. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Hopefully you found it very helpful and interesting. Uh, Farhan is great on this subject and there was a lot that you can learn from his book and also from this conversation as well. So I definitely recommend going to go pick up his book as well. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast every single week-ish. I know it's been a while since I've recorded or put out a podcast. Uh, we release a podcast with an author to discuss their book and the ideas and principles inside of it. So definitely recommend subscribing to the podcast, whether you're listening to this on Apple, Spotify or YouTube. Thank you again for listening to this podcast and I look forward to seeing you in the next one.